Welcome back, Tessany and our listeners. It's 2024. I think it's going to be my favourite year yet, Mum. It's our first full year of podcasting. Oh, I like that. So without further ado, because we've left our listeners waiting for really quite a long time, should we get straight into it? I think so. Should we just dive right in? Let's do that. Okay, well, for today's episode, because as we've discussed before, health and fitness myths and trends and stuff like that are sort of always rampant on TikTok, but it seems especially bad for the end of December, beginning of January, because people know that everyone's ramping up for the new year and trying to start the new year with good habits. And so I think a lot of maybe fitness influencers might view that as a good time to start pushing something. Well, I think you're right there, Tess, because one thing I've noticed, I'm a member of Orange Theory, and perhaps we'll talk about that on another episode. I keep finding myself waitlisted. I can't get into a class. They're so busy at the moment. Yeah, it's the same thing with uh, the pool that I swim at. There's only three lanes, which most of the time you can always get a lane. But lately it's been chock-a-block, lots of people, which is great, obviously, everybody getting out there swimming or getting to Orange Theory. But it does mean that you have to be quite prepared on getting to reserve those spots very early. Yes, and the cynical part of me, Tess, says roll on February the 1st and everything will be quiet again. Yeah, that is usually how it goes. And so because of that, I have actually rounded up some of the most popular fitness trends, tips, things like that that I'm seeing on social media at the moment. So we can just sort of do a rapid fire, see what you think about them. And if it's worth, I know, if it's worth doing them or trying them out for 2024. So what you're telling me is you're putting me on the spot Yes, I figured we'd start 2024 with me essentially quizzing you, but don't worry because you're the one that edits the episode so you can just take it out. (laughs) Well, I'll try to be honest, as always, Tess, in my edits and not make myself out to be a genius if I don't know the answers. And in fact, when we talked about this, our preparation for today, I said I wasn't going to look up any subjects, any TikToks, and that if there was something I wasn't sure about, we'd try and demonstrate to our listeners my process for finding out more about it. Exactly, yes. And if we get to one that we are like, actually, that's quite interesting, it would be good to look into that more, then that might become a future episode. And uh, as always, if you're listening and you're like, oh, I want to know more about that, or oh, they didn't bring up this one, but I want to know more about this question or this trend I'm seeing, you can always comment on Instagram, send us a DM, send us an email, reach out through the website, whatever you want to see if we can cover whatever topic you have in mind. All right, you ready? I am. All right, so the first one is one that I'm seeing a ton of, and it is putting rice water in your hair will make your hair grow. That's just hilarious. Um, So I actually suggested to you that at some point we do an episode on things like moisturisers, you know, all the lotions and potions that we're encouraged to put on our faces and the shampoos and conditioners and various hair products that we're all spending a lot of money on. Because what people don't realise is that, and let's just think about the hair now and the rice water, The hair that we are looking at when we look at somebody's lustrous locks, it's dead. That hair that we can see is dead. Only live part of hair is this follicle that is embedded in the skin. So we are much more likely to be able to affect the quality of our hair by what we take into our body and what then gets transported by the blood to our scalp that's how we would affect the quality of our hair now things like conditioners can make our hair look nicer because they flatten down the shaft of the hair that's all they actually do they're not changing the quality of the hair they're not changing the health of the hair they're not changing the growth of the hair they can't because the hair that we look at is dead 
What about if you drink the rice water? Ah, well, are they suggesting that? No, they're, they're suggesting spraying it into, like, you, like, around your scalp. Well, there's no physiological mechanism by which that would improve your hair growth. Because it's not getting to the growth part of the hair, which, as I said, is the follicle, one follicle per hair, which is embedded in your skin, embedded in your scalp. So that then presumably would go for hair oils as well, right? Like anything that you're putting on top is is not going to do a whole lot because at, at the time that the hair comes out of your scalp, it's already done. It's already yeah, dead. Yes. Yes. You're looking at dead bits of protein, really. Um, well, protein was never alive. It's just a chemical molecule. But the hair is made up of protein and dead cells. And that's what we're looking at. So, yeah, you can make that look nicer by treating it with something which will smooth it out, for instance, but you can't change the quality of your hair by applying something directly to the hair. So if you're trying to make your hair grow, anything that you're putting on on top isn't necessarily going to help it grow. It might make it look shinier, nicer, healthier, but it's not going to help it grow any longer. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Okay. So looks like if you're trying to grow your hair, that's not going to be the best method. Correct. And just to give you something helps make sense of this, if you think about one of the ways that we're all familiar with that can cause people to lose their hair that would be chemotherapy where people are taking you know nasty toxic drugs to get rid of their cancers and one of the unpleasant side effects is that those drugs can cause hair loss well how do they do that they're not being applied to the person's hair they're going into the person's body traveling around in the bloodstream and these chemotherapy drugs are getting to the cancer cells and destroying those but they're also getting to guess what the hair follicles and destroying the hair that way so that's just more evidence if you like the important part of your hair is the hair follicle that's the only living part and that's embedded in our skin that actually makes sense too when some people say they lost hair due to stress because the stress is internal, right? It's saying... Presumably. I mean, we might be getting into territory to do with what cortisol does to the hair follicle and I definitely don't know anything about that. But yes, the problem is coming from within and we just see it externally. I think it's good to say we're getting into this territory that I don't really know because I think for all of these, the issue is somebody talking about something in a tarot that they don't quite understand but sort of giving the impression that they understand it very well okay you ready for the next one i am okay so you're familiar with protein powder i'm sure this trend is about dry scooping protein powder so ordinarily you put the protein powder in your, your water or your drink and you mix it up and you drink it this is about just putting a scoop of the powder straight in your mouth these people are claiming it's like more effective you get more benefit from it oh right well Let's go through my thinking process for this. So the first thing I'm going to say is I'm very nervous about putting dry powders in our mouths. This reminds me awfully of, was it the cinnamon challenge, the YouTube? Oh yeah, because it gets like placky, right? Quite possibly, but I think the other worry with putting a powder in the mouth is that there are two things that go in to our mouths, two types of things if you like. We've got food and drink, I'm counting that as one type, and then we've got air. And then as food and drink or air move through the mouth and go into the throat, then that pipe there at the back of our throat divides to become the windpipe, the trachea or trachea if you're American, and the food pipe. Do you know what that's called? Uh, No. Uh, Oh, I did know that. I did know that. I was going to say the food chute, but I think esophagus (laughs) sounds better. I like food chute. It kind of sounds like fun, doesn't it? The food chute. Uh, 
that's because that's what I picture when the food goes in. It like goes wee down this little thing. So imagine food should normally go wee down the food chute. When it's very powdery, there's the potential for it to not go down the food chute, but actually to go through the back of the throat and where that pipe divides. <gasps> oh, oh, the lungs. Yes. And that's a disaster. So I think that that's something that the medical profession would be, even if this is really the best way to get protein, we don't want you to be doing this because of the risk of it's called aspirating when we take food into our lungs. And that's a potentially fatal occurrence. Yes. Okay. So even if it is, you get slightly more protein, it's probably not worth aspirating and potentially dying for a little bit extra protein. Correct. Correct. Now, to go then to, okay, we'll just say, okay, well, that doesn't happen. You know, is there really any benefit? Well, proteins have to be broken down into their little parts and that proteins are made up of amino acids. And then amino acids can move across the wall of our intestines, our guts, into our bloodstream. That protein digestion down to those small bits, those amino acids, that doesn't occur in the mouth. And if the proteins don't get broken down to the amino acids, proteins are too big to go across the wall of anything into the blood supply. So proteins have to go into our gut. They have to be broken down into amino acids. And then amino acids have to use little transport proteins, which literally give them a piggyback across the wall of the intestines into the bloodstream. None of that exists in the mouth. The ability to break down the proteins nor these little pig piggyback agents, they're not present in the mouth. So the idea of protein digestion and absorption in the mouth does not make sense. Okay, so if you think about it, the amino acids are like saying that there's like a guard at that wall and the amino acids go, I mean no harm, let me in, and they take the protein through. So th- think of a protein as being like a pearl necklace or okay. any kind of necklace that's got beads on it. Think of then each amino acid as being one of those pearls or one of those beads. Mm-hmm. The necklace has to be broken down into the hundred individual beads, each one of those being an amino acid, in order for it to get into the bloodstream. That doesn't happen in the mouth. It only happens in the intestines. Okay. I think that makes very much sense. I did like my, I mean, no harm. Yeah, but... definitely go for that. So once we've got those beads <laughs> been broken down, it's not now a necklace, then the beads, the amino acids go, I mean, no harm. Give me a ride across the wall of the intestine. And those these little protein carriers, they're called, then give the amino acids a ride across into the bloodstream. They okay. don't exist in the mouth. So basically, all of that really important work doesn't happen in the mouth anyways. Definitely not worth risking your life over Correct. it. Really glad you asked me that one, and I'm totally horrified that that's an idea. All right, we ready for the next one? Yep. All right, so we talked recently about melatonin as a sleep aid, but this time people are taking magnesium, magnesium supplement as a sleep aid. What are our thoughts there? Well, <laughs> the first thought is, what's <clears throat> supplement? Okay, did you catch? <laughs> I didn't think you'd catch that. Gosh, <laughs> my co-host is so mean. I have for the very longest time not been a supplement user. I'll be honest and say that I read the literature that said we absorb vitamins and minerals much better from our diet than by taking supplements. 
So I have always been of the mind that if you have a well-balanced diet, then you are getting all the vitamins and minerals. These are these micronutrients that we talked about in the seaweed conversation. I have always been minded that if I ate a good, well-balanced diet, I would be getting enough of those. So that's the perspective that I came from. Now I can tell you that I started about three months ago with magnesium. And the reason I started with it was because I read the literature around some trials that had been carried out on older people that showed that older people don't seem to absorb magnesium as well from their intestines. Therefore, they benefit from having extra magnesium, more perhaps than they can get from their diet. And this seemed to be benefiting their sleep. So I think this is one that there is evidence for, but particularly with older people in the sort of 50 plus age group. Okay, interesting. So because the majority of the people talking about it on TikTok are like young 20s, even like late teens. Yeah, so I don't think there's as much evidence there. The work that I have seen has looked at older people because there was this suspicion that older people have more of a problem absorbing it from their gut. I'm not saying it's not beneficial for a 20-year-old, but I am suggesting that there appears to be more research to suggest that it's more beneficial for older people. One thing I'd caution our listeners to be careful about, and I hate to be beating this drum about supplements again, but Things like magnesium, iron, calcium, if we take too much of any of those, it might impair, it might reduce our ability to absorb one of the other ones. So let's say you take a whole load of magnesium that you don't maybe need, then it might affect your calcium absorption or your iron absorption. So you could have a whole load of one and then actually end up by supplementing, by trying to do the right thing, having not enough of another one. So this is where we get into the territory of, if you're going to take a magnesium supplement, I would try to take it well away from any food that I'm eating or any of the supplements that I'm taking so that it's not going to interfere with their absorption from the gut. Does that make sense? It does. And that actually kind of I was going to, another question I was going to ask you was, are there really any supplements useful or worth purchasing? And the reason for asking that is that there are a ton of different supplements pushed on TikTok, whether it's like gummies for your hair, skin and nails or magnesium for sleep or this for that. And it seems like the question maybe shouldn't be which ones are and aren't worth taking, but more so going to your doctor and finding out, getting your blood work done and finding out exactly what you need, because not everybody's going to need the same stuff your spot on there and it might be difficult to get your doctor to do those blood tests but really that's the best idea before you start taking a multivitamin which is giving you a lot of everything is to really try and drill down on are you likely to be short of one in which case perhaps just consider supplementing that one there's a fairly decent amount of evidence now that says vitamin d is something that we need to be a little bit more mindful of again you can have a vitamin d blood test pretty easily so before you go and you know take a multivitamin which's got vitamin d but got everything else in maybe just check to see if vitamin d is really something you're short of yeah because that is interesting that it's not so much like a oh well it's not the end of the world if i end up getting little bit extra calcium when I already have enough calcium it's like that actually can be a problem because then it stops you from getting something else you need so that is really important I think to stress yes I think so and in fact I've just remembered the particular interaction that we have is between magnesium and zinc so they use the same little I was talking about the little molecules that give things a piggyback across the wall of the intestine 
Yes. Well, magnesium and zinc use the same little piggybackers. So if you take in extra magnesium, you should be aware that you'll actually then end up having less zinc absorbed. Now, is that because the little piggybackers are like, hang on, there's too many of you. We only have enough room to carry some of you. So some of you are going to have to wait here. That's exactly right. In biochemistry, we call that saturation and transport mechanisms. But I like your version better. Yep, there's a finite, there's a certain number of these little piggybackers and they only have a certain amount of ability to take things across. That's very interesting. I do feel like, and I think everybody's different, but I find it much easier to understand this stuff when I picture them as like cute little people doing jobs as opposed to cells in your bodies. Whatever works, Tess, whatever works. Okay. Apple cider vinegar reduces your chances of getting cancer. My word. Is that one sweeping the internet? Yeah, so this actually started, I think you might be a bit unimpressed by this, but a, I believe it was a nurse that worked for an OBGYN said, I no longer work for the OBGYN, so now I'm going to share all the secrets that basically the doctors don't want you to know, because presumably you'll know these secrets and you'll be healthier and you won't have to come in and they won't get your money. Oh my word. And, and it was basically a several slides of this product does this and this product does this. And they said, apple cider vinegar reduces your chances of getting cancer. And what I thought was interesting was it didn't say anything about how. Do you drink the apple cider vinegar? Do you bathe in it? There was no specificity there. And then also reduce your chances of every cancer or what? It was just very broad. But some people then started to share like, yes, that's why I drink it every day. Yes, I do a shot for breakfast. And it's kind of how those things then take off. Really. Well, let me give a two-pronged response to that. One science and one vaguely political. Um, which would you like first? Let's do the vaguely political one. Any prime minister, president, politician, you name it, any pharmaceutical company, if there was research out there saying we have the key to preventing cancer and it's apple cider vinegar, you better believe we would know about it. If it was a president who knew about it, they would be claiming credit for curing cancer. If it was a pharmaceutical company, they'd be packaging it up as something fancy and saying, it's just got to be this kind of apple cider vinegar. It's our apple cider vinegar. You know, somebody would be out there making sure they got a whole heap of credit for it or a whole lot of money for it. Just to clarify, by the way, it says reduces your chances of getting cancer, not curing it. Okay, sorry, but same thing. I mean, I don't know what the bill to Wales, to Canada, to the US, to Australia, I don't know what the bill from cancer is every year. But if it was as easy as taking apple cider vinegar would dramatically reduce our risk of cancer, we would all know about it. I would like to see the evidence that says doctors are conspiring to keep us unhealthy. That's a real conspiracy theory, isn't it, if ever we heard one. It's interesting too, because saying apple cider vinegar reduces your chances of getting cancer. But what if you weren't going to get cancer to begin with? It's one thing to say, I had cancer and this fixed it. It's another thing to say, I drink this and it stopped me from ever getting cancer. Because oh, maybe you wouldn't yeah. have ever gotten it anyway. Absolutely. We need clinical trials if we really think this is a thing. Then we need to have thousands of people taking apple cider vinegar. We need to have thousands of people not taking apple cider vinegar. And we need to follow all of these people for 20 years and see in the group of people who weren't drinking the vinegar, were there higher rates of cancer? I do not think there are any kinds of trials like that. Every day we take in foods, different foods, we do different activities that generate changes to the acidity, the acid content of our blood. But 
we don't really experience any issues with that because we have two marvellous little bean-shaped organs. Kidneys. Ta-da! And it's the kidneys' job, one of the many jobs of the kidneys, because our kidneys are amazing, it's our kidneys' jobs to, despite what we do, to keep the acidity, the acid levels of our blood about the same. So if you take in something that's very acid drink something let's say like acidic vinegar what was it apple vinegar then our kidneys make sure that that acid that's in the vinegar just goes out in our pee we get rid of it down the toilet so do you think the kidneys when you drink this go oh my gosh you don't have any respect for the work that i do i think that's exactly what they do and they go bloody hell not this apple cider vinegar again (laughs) yeah i feel for him yes me too and they are truly well as with all of our organs really unsung heroes they're amazing. People talk about the kidneys as just, they think about the kidneys as just making pee, making urine, but they are amazing organs. Ask anybody whose kidneys are failing and who has to do dialysis several times a week for hours and hours, they'll tell you we all take our kidneys for granted. Ready for the next one? Of course. Okay, bovine colostrum instantly blocks stomach pain and reverses bloating. Oh, okay. So colostrum, anybody who's just had a baby is likely to have heard of this because the colostrum is the first milk humans produce it as well. It's produced over the first few days after in humans a baby has been delivered. Presumably, if we're talking about bovine colostrum, same thing, bovine in cows, it's the milk that the mother is going to be feeding to her calf for the first few days. Then the milk that we think about when we drink cow's milk, that thicker stuff, that comes in a few days later. And it's a pretty similar process when human mothers are feeding human babies. It's thin, watery milk to start off with called colostrum for about the first four to five days, full of antibodies and lots of good stuff. But the real hearty, calorie-dense milk in humans doesn't come in until about day five. I'm not an expert on cow physiology. I'm not quite sure when the timing is, when we go from colostrum to the kind of milk that humans want to drink, but I'm guessing it's going to be within the first few days. So tell me again what you were telling me that bovine colostrum does. It looks like it was a supplement in this video, and it says bovine colostrum instantly blocks stomach pain and reverses bloating symptoms. Okay, so I might plead the fifth on this one. And the reason I'm going to do that is... We know that breastfeeding, that's typically what British people call it, more often called nursing in America, we know that breastfeeding infants is associated with a whole host of benefits. I mentioned that there are antibodies, for instance, in breast milk that the mother's giving to the baby, which gives the baby some protection when it doesn't really have much of an immune system to start off. But there's also tons of wonderful nutrients, body-building molecules So breast milk, including the first colostrum, is thought to have a whole heap of benefits. So bovine colostrum, I'm sure that that is incredibly good for calves. It will do the same sorts of jobs as human colostrum will do. Whether it would do that for our gut, nah, I don't know. I suspect there's other things that we can do that are better than that to prevent bloating and... It says block stomach pain, which I also think, again, that's quite general. Like, you could have stomach pain for a variety of reasons. So it seems surprising if this one thing instantly blocks all stomach pain. I would agree. And the other thing that I think about that is that if you think about the last time you had a bit of indigestion, a bit of stomach ache, it probably went away on its own. Mm-hmm. So if you took colostrum... Isn't there a possibility that the stomach pain went away on its own, but you just happened to think, oh, that was because I took the colostrum? Ah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. All right, ready for the next one? Have at it. 
Um, so we talked actually in a previous episode, and you guys can find that uh, near the beginning of our episodes if you're interested, about exercising according to your menstrual cycle. Um, yes, remember this one, and spoiler alert, there's not a ton of research that um, that supports this, and actually some suggest you might get injured if you do this. But this time, it's eating according to your menstrual phases or your menstrual cycle. Eating certain foods when you're in your luteal phase, other foods when you're in your whatever the other phases are called, and so on and so forth. Thoughts on that? Um, okay, so before I give you my thoughts, for what end? What was the suggestion that we should be eating the different foods? Because what would happen? What would be the benefit? Uh, losing weight, balancing your hormones, and having less... Oh, inflammation. So, first of all, I absolutely blooming hate this phrase, balancing your hormones. <laughs> Not that I'm holding you personally responsible for it because I've seen and heard it a gazillion times before. And it's just the most nonsensical, uninformative phrase because take a wild guess, Tess, how many hormones we're thought to have? Uh, maybe 50? 50 is a very good answer. And by Ooh. the way, it's probably more than 50. We know of about 50 to date, but over the last few years, we've had a pretty good track record of more and more being identified. So... When we talk about balancing hormones, the idea that we could balance all 50 of them by just eating or doing something, it doesn't make sense. Maybe we could change the levels of one hormone or two hormones by something that we're doing. But all of these hormones are doing different things for us. We've got hormones that make us grow. We've got hormones that are supporting our reproductive function. We've got hormones that help us to burn calories. So the idea that we could eat one thing type of thing and it would regulate the behavior of all of these very different hormones does not make sense we are way more complicated than that that's quite a nice thought actually we're we're way more more sophisticated and complicated sophisticated i like that so that was that's the first thing i'd say i've forgotten what this question was now eating yes so i think what they're getting at there and there is a little bit of science here When we go into the second half of the cycle, that part of the cycle, the luteal phase, which occurs after the egg has been released, so after ovulation, this is a phase where there's a lot of progesterone circulating. By the way, as with the exercising according to your menstrual cycle, if you are someone who is using oral contraception, ignore everything that I'm about to say. Yeah, that was a big thing in actually in the episode we did about exercises that people get so into it. But then if you said, well, you're on contraception and a large percentage of women are, then it doesn't apply anyways. You tell me, what's the demographic that uses TikTok? Younger. Teens to early 20s is like the the majority of the users. So I'm guessing then that a lot of people who are now thinking, oh, if I change my eating pattern according to when I have my period... Well, they're forgetting that they are not having proper periods. They're not having the normal hormonal fluctuations because they have a chemically changed state because of their oral contraception. Yeah, because there might be plenty of people that watch those videos and say, oh, this doesn't apply to me. I'm on contraception. But those videos never state them at the beginning. They never say, if you're on contraception, this doesn't apply to you. And therefore, it would be very reasonable to expect that a lot of people were listening to and following the advice of these videos and at no point realizing it might not apply to them if they're on oral contraception yes so for all of those people even if this is true eating according to whether you're in your follicular phase first half of the cycle or the luteal phase eating differently could affect your weight for instance if you're using the oral contraception that's not the case so ignore what i'm about to say okay 
But if you aren't using oral contraception in the second half of your cycle, then that's when our progesterone levels go up. And progesterone, this is a hormone which is all about preparing the body for pregnancy. And one of the things that it does is it increases our deposition of fat. So in the second half of our cycle, we are more likely to put fat into storage in our fat cells. So I think what they're getting at here is if you were to eat a lower fat diet in the second half of your cycle, that might sort of counteract those effects of progesterone. Oh, interesting. So this actually does seem like it could have more validity than the exercising. Well, True. yes, except that, except that it's not as simple as that because if you ate three pounds of gummy bears... Okay, there's no fat in gummy bears. They're just basically sugary water, aren't they? And a bit of gelatin, I think it is. Beautiful, delicious sugary water and right. gelatin. beautiful, delicious sugary water. Um, could you put on weight if you only ate gummy bears, <coughs> even though gummy bears have no fat in them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because any food that we take into excess, in excess of our needs, has the potential to be converted into, drum roll please, guess what? Fat. Correct. So whilst... There's part of me that says, yeah, okay, we've got more progesterone in the second half of our cycle and that promotes the filling of our fat cells with fat. If you just said, oh, I'm not going to eat um, fries, but I'm going to have lots of gummy bears instead. Well, you just convert those gummy bears into fat and then the progesterone would help that fat to be deposited, stored in our fat cells. So is that the same if you ate 100 calories worth of gummy bears compared to 100 calories worth of fries? Well, there's all sorts of discussion about this that our calories that we eat in fat is it easier for the body to lay them down as fat into our cells but what I was really getting at more is that if you eat and we'll talk about this in very simple terms if you eat calories in excess of what you need so let's say for the last 24 hours we've got somebody who burnt 2,000 calories just staying alive and going to work if that person ate 2,200 calories so they've got an excess of 200. It doesn't matter if those 200 calories were protein-based calories, fat-based calories, or carbohydrate-based calories. They're still largely going to be made into fat. So I could kind of see maybe where there might be some interest in this one. But I definitely wouldn't bother with it if I was using oral contraception. And I'm going to plead the fifth on whether it would make much of a difference in people who aren't using oral contraception. Okay, great. I think that's a good answer. Thank you very much. The next one, drinking bone broth. Oh. It's good for hair, skin, nails, weight loss. Made somewhat popular by Gwyneth Paltrow, but it's now pretty common on TikTok. Yeah, now this is an interesting one. The first thing I'm going to say is that I'm a total wimp when it comes to meat. I'll eat a chicken breast, but I don't like chicken wings because I don't like the bones. I accept that I'm ridiculous, but I like the meat that I eat to not look like it's been anywhere near an animal ever. No, I know, but you've been like that our whole lives. I can and I have dissected humans. They weren't alive. Um, that doesn't Thank goodness. Mean... Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm totally unsqueamish, but I just don't like meat that you can relate it back to the animals. So, so you're owning up to a bit of a personal bias. Then, I am owning up to a bit of a personal bias, which I, I have to recognise and try and go past. So the things I think about when we think about bone broth, apart from the horror of boiling this stuff up on the stove, 
the first thing that comes to mind is, yes, bones are made of protein. Tons of protein, tons of calcium inside the bone, depending which bones you're boiling up on your stove. You've got bone marrow and that's got fat in it. It's got fat soluble vitamins. There's a lot of good stuff in bone. That's on the plus side. They're a good nutrient resource. Now, do you remember when we talked seaweed, we talked about this term bioavailability? Can you give me a bit of a clue just to jog my memory? Because I do, I know I do know it, but... (laughs) (laughs) But I need a clue. Just because something gets into our gut... Oh, does it mean it gets used? Yeah, sort of. Just because we talked about, for instance, that we could eat seaweed and those nutrients would come from the seaweed into our gut, but they wouldn't necessarily be able to get across the wall of the gut and into our blood where they could be used. We might just poop them out. Yes, yes, the poop them out. I remember that now. Okay, I'll give you a C plus test. That's fair. I I could do better. (laughs) Okay, so one thing that we need to make sure if we're going to do this is how are we going to boil them up? And we need to boil them up with something nicely acidic. So actually, lemon juice, vinegar, you can use your apple cider vinegar. In fact, if you're going to use your apple cider vinegar, probably this is a better use of it than drinking it. They actually, the most people are buying the bone broth, kind of like you buy chicken broth. Okay, so what I was going to say was if you're making your own, uh, you have to have something really acid in the mix because otherwise the calcium doesn't come out of the bone. Okay, so, that's good to know though. So that's one thing is just because bones are full of nutrients, can you be sure that the bone broth that you made or that you bought has a good concentration of those nutrients in it. And the suggestion seems to be that bone broth, whether you're making it yourself or whether you're buying it, probably doesn't have as high a concentration of protein, of calcium, as possibly other foodstuffs or other supplements. Okay, interesting. So what I would say is, assuming that you're not boiling up any diseased bones, which would obviously be a horrible idea, if you are boiling up bones of, you know, the chicken that you just ate for dinner or I don't know what bones people boil up for this, it's probably not going to do you any harm and you might get some useful nutrients. Whether it's the best way to get those nutrients, eh, I don't think the case has proven on that. Very interesting. You're doing great, Mum. Sorry, Dr. P. We're almost at the end. This one is... Are milk alternatives, and I should say like dairy milk alternatives, like soy milk, oat milk, any of those, actually like healthy and good for you, or is that just good marketing? Ooh, now then. Well, you're speaking to somebody who does rather like oat milk. Oat milk in oats makes great oatmeal, great porridge, super creamy. (laughs) What I'm going to say about these is twofold benefits and disadvantages if you look at oat milk oat milk is a fantastic source of calcium i know this because i have unfortunately osteoporosis which we discovered when i got knocked off my bicycle by a car but i have to be really mindful now of getting extra calcium and one of the ways that i do that is to substitute out in fact cow's milk for oat milk and almond milk because there's more calcium in both of those than it is in cow's milk which is oh wow great. so they have less protein but they have more calcium we get back to this idea that i think we talked about almost right at the beginning of this that something can be great for somebody because it supplies what that person needs but not great for somebody else because that person's missing something else so for me oat milk and almond milk are a great way of me getting extra calcium If we're worried about, for instance, saturated fats, such as we get in milk, then oat milk, almond milk have a lot less saturated fat in them than whole milk. Now, I will say 
that the story of fat as it relates to cholesterol, as it relates to heart disease, has become a lot more confused in the last few years. So whereas for the last 30 years we've been told to not have fat and you have low fat everything, now actually some people are saying we maybe didn't need to be worrying about fat and we need to be worrying a lot more about sugar. But we'll leave that for another day. So do I think that these nut milks have some benefits? Absolutely I do. I think they taste quite nice and I think for some nutrients they can be really super duper. I don't know that much about soy milk but I think soy milk it's not wonderful for calcium, but I think it has a better protein content than other nut milk. Again, it's looking at the label and seeing what might be in there that might be useful to you, that what perhaps you're missing out on in your diet. What's the downside of these is, and we can't really deny this, is that they're pretty processed. Unless you're making your own almond milk, if you look at the ingredients list on the side of that carton of almond milk or soy milk or oat milk, then there's probably going to be included a list of quite a few chemicals that you can't say the names of. And that makes me a little bit nervous. I always have a little smile to myself when I see the oat milk and the almond milk in the chiller cabinet next to the dairy milk because they don't need to be in there. I think they're in there to give this illusion of them being fresh like cow's milk but natural fact ah. they've got so much stuff in them that you'll see them on the shelves as well. Anything that will last for two years on a shelf that gives me a little bit of a pause for concern as to what are the chemicals in there that's allowing it to last that long. I think that's my answer for this. I think there's a place for them, a role for them but they're not without their problems and we haven't there gone into the discussion that there is about how much energy, how much water does it take to produce a litre of cow's milk versus a litre of one of these other non-dairy milks and that's a whole debate as well. I think environmentally they say it's not great. Yes. Like soy milk isn't great for the environment. Almonds take a huge amount of water to grow but then cows produce a whole load of greenhouse gases so in their farts are... <laughs> indeed those are difficult <laughs> issues to get to grips with all right well i have one last one for you and then i'm going to end with a question but my last one for you is eating fruits and vegetables out of season is bad for you well what i'm going to say here is again twofold one if you are eating fruits and vegetables that are out of season where you are living, then they will have been grown somewhere else and flown from there and almost certainly will have been flown a long way. That's not good for us because it's killing the planet. A little bit different perhaps to what you were expecting, but if we are eating strawberries in Minnesota in December, those strawberries have not been grown locally. And I think a lot of us feel that if we could get back to a more seasonal eating where the products that we are eating have been grown locally and haven't been trucked or flown, then obviously that, that would be very good for the planet. So that's one thing. So it's not exactly that it's bad for us as individuals, but this expecting to have strawberries in December wherever we live is probably not great for the planet or it isn't good for the planet. There's no probably about it. Okay. Going to the physiology of it, is it bad for us to be eating strawberries in December? Well, if those strawberries have been grown in an artificial way in order to make them ripen in December, maybe they're not as nutrient rich as ones that have been grown in more natural conditions. So it might be that they're not as nutrient dense as fruit and veg that you are eating at the right time of the year and stuff grown locally. So I wouldn't say they would be bad for you. I would say that they may be less good for you than eating local produce at the time of year when it's being produced. That's the key, right, is maybe it's better to eat squash in September then or October than 
strawberries, but it's certainly better to eat strawberries than a chocolate bar. <laughs> it's always better to eat strawberries than a chocolate bar, really. <laughs> Sorry, the reason I should clarify, the reason I said that is because the person that started, it was a cardiologist that started this trend, said out of season fruit is just as bad for you. You might as well eat a chocolate bar. I should have asked Tess, why was he saying that? His big thing was the lectins. Yes, yeah, so I don't quite understand about that, Tess. Plants contain lectins, and lectins are little proteins that are thought to be part of the plant's immune system. So we have an immune system, it defends us against bacteria, against viruses, against all manner of germs. Well, it turns out that plants actually have an immune system as well, and they use these lectins as part of their immune system. And some people have suggested that these lectins might not be great for us. But as far as I understand it, you've got fruits that are high in lectins, and strawberries would be a good example of that. But the strawberries grown at any time of the year are going to be high in lectins. So if you're somebody who believes this idea of the lectin-free diet, or reduced lectin diet, which is really a reduced plant diet, then really eating strawberries at any time of the year is going to be off limits for you, not just when they're not in season. Okay, so we might have to edit some of this, Mum, because I'm a bit worried I misrepresented him. It's like an hour and a half, I think almost two hour podcast. He definitely believed if you were going to eat fruits and vegetables, you should eat them in season. But in general, he was, the lectins are really bad, basically. But I don't know if, I can't remember if he was saying the lectins worse in season or whatever. We could edit this bit out, Tess. But in actual fact, I think what you've demonstrated is how easy it is for any of us to get confused about the message that we are being given by social media. So imagine a scenario where, let's just say it's possible that you have misremembered it. How likely is it that you might have talked to a friend about this and said, oh, yeah, well, he says that um, strawberries in June are fine, but strawberries in December, no, no, eat a chocolate bar. And then you sort of say that to somebody and then that somebody says it to somebody else. And actually what you've just demonstrated beautifully is unless the message given is super clear, it's very easy for people to get confused and then to pass on that confusion to others. Well, that's actually a really good place to end this and with my final question, which I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but I find this that people use the phrase, well, that's just my opinion, a get out of jail free card. They might say something that's factually incorrect, but they say, well, it's just my opinion. And I found that the get out of jail free card for this stuff on TikTok, if you comment and say, oh, actually, that's not correct, or actually, there's no science for that, they say, well, I'm just sharing what works for me. And that people seem to use that because they say, I'm I'm not your doctor, so they're not liable, right? They're just saying, I'm just sharing what works for me. And all of these videos and all of these trends that I found, at some point, someone talked about it, said, I'm just telling you that this works for me. So ultimately, do you think that's helpful? Like we should share what works for us? Is it harmful? Is it actually sending people down rabbit holes and into habits they shouldn't do? Or is it somewhere in between? I think it's somewhere in between because I think it depends on with who and how you're sharing that information. If you're just talking to a friend or a relative, somebody who you perhaps know doesn't have health issues and is pretty sensible and isn't going to go and suddenly start eating bone broth morning, noon, night and nothing else, then I think that's human, isn't it? That's human to talk about our experiences. I think where it becomes problematic is where we have... And it really often is very gorgeous, very photogenic people presenting very nice videos that 
they are kind of claiming that this particular supplement or this particular dietary tweak has changed their lives. And then I think that's dangerous then when that's going out to lots of people who may go down that rabbit hole and may kind of mishear it. Like I say, if some bone broth is good, that's all I'm going to eat. I'm just going to eat bone broth. If some fruit and veg are bad, okay, I'm going to cut out all fruit and veg. Again, we go back to this Be careful about changing things without considering your medical status compared to the person presenting and thinking about what does this person have to gain from giving this information? Are they just getting followers? And I'm perfectly prepared to believe that the person presenting the, what did you say? What was that phrase you used about this works for me? I'm just sharing what works for me. I'm not telling anyone else to do. I'm just sharing what works for me. Question to that is, how do you know It's that that's working for you. It's pretty difficult to be your own clinical trial. Mm. And as we've talked about on quite a few occasions, placebo effect. If you you think it's going to work, does that make it work? Or does that actually not make it work, but make you think it's working? Yeah, and then also that could, if I say, I'm just sharing what works for me, this spraying this thing on my pillow makes me go to sleep. So someone else who's really looking for an answer to their sleep problem starts spraying it and it works for them. It could still be a placebo effect and then it could still work. And then that person could still tell other people, no, it's worked for me too. So it's kind of an interesting area. It is. It is. And in fact, really, it makes me think about, we need to know more about the power and the downside of the placebo effect because it's such an interesting phenomenon. That might be a a whole another episode in itself. (laughs) I think that might be a whole series of episodes, actually. I think it's such a big topic. But anyway, I think we should go. We have a lot here. Well, thank you, Dr. P. I felt like you did very well in the hot seat today. Gosh, well, thank you, Tess. I feel like I need to go and lie down in a darkened room for a couple of hours. But uh, I think it was hopefully interesting for the listeners. And please, listeners, if you want to know more about any of those things or you've got other things which you'd like us to discuss get in touch because we really want to talk about things that matter to you yeah absolutely some of the topics we covered today were sent in via instagram dm so please keep them coming it is super helpful to know what you're interested in hearing more about excellent so i think that i need to go and get a few endorphins now have a little bit of a walk get a bit of fresh air what about you you know what that sounds lovely i think i might do the same well thanks for hanging out with me tess and i will see you same place same time next week sounds like a plan bye bye (laughs) bye And as a reminder, our conversation here aims to pass along some interesting science and help you develop your sciencey thinking muscles. Neither of us are medical doctors or any type of healthcare professional, so we are absolutely not providing medical advice. You should see your medically qualified professional for that. And whilst all content provided is given in good faith, based on the scientific knowledge base available at the time of recording... If we misspeak or further research changes our understanding or that of the scientific community, we'll try our best to make any necessary corrections, either in a future episode or in our show notes. See See you you next time. time!